Hello, James Kenny here, and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, The Evolution of the Irish from Biblical Times. This is episode number 16, entitled Lord Edward Fitzgerald, Generals Jean Humbert and Charles Cornwallis, and the 1798 Rebellion in Ireland. This review of this podcast now includes an original song entitled Jeanne Joseph Amabel Humbert, and this is as an outro. If you wish, you can become a patron of this podcast by visiting www.landofthegoldensunset.podbean.com. In any event, please continue to follow and like. Because of the penal laws against the Irish Catholics, some families with power and wealth decided to go with the flow and change to this new religion in order to educate their children in Ireland in the professions such as doctors and lawyers. The alternative was to send them to France and Spain for their education. Those families could now also hold on to their estates and lands having converted to Protestantism. Such were the men who decided to make a stand against the terrible torture being inflicted on the native Irish by the invading English soldiers. More especially since decent-minded English generals were sickened and had spoken out about the brutality being inflicted upon the downtrodden Irish. But George III hated all Catholics, and in particular Irish Catholics. So remonstrating with this mad king did not avail them anything, only the reverse in fact. George III sent Lord Cornwallis, who had been defeated by the Americans under Washington in their fight against English colonial rule in their country. Now 17 years later, he was frothing at the mouth for a victory and sent Cornwallis with a vast army to attack the United Irishmen. Although through informers they had knowledge of the forthcoming rebellion of the United Irishmen, the French had agreed to send troops and arms to Ireland to assist in the battle against the English in Ireland in 1798, at the behest of Wolfe Tone and Napper Tandy, who had accompanied the French fleet of three ships to Ireland, but raging storms at sea separated the ships. At Killala Bay on the morning of the 23rd of August 1798, one of the ships eventually landed with a small army of 1,500 troops. They were met by a similar number of Irish insurgents, Gaelic, Irish-speaking, raw, unarmed and untrained, who could not understand the French, nor could the French understand the Irish, but all were determined to fight the English. They had some small success until they were overwhelmed by a superior English force under Cornwallis when the French General Humbert surrendered. General Jan Joseph Amabel Humbert, 1767-1823, was charged by the French to prepare for an expedition to Ireland. He took command of the Légion des France under General Louis Hoche, sailing in the ill-fated expedition de Arlande to Bantry Bay in 1796, and was engaged in actions at sea against the Royal Navy. 
bad weather and enemy action forced this expedition to withdraw. The trip home ended in a naval battle, during which Humber narrowly escaped death, as his ship was destroyed and sank. Hundreds of men perished, but Humbert was among the last to escape. On his return to France, Humbert served in the army of the Sambre et Mousse before being appointed to command the troops in another attempt to support the rising in Ireland in 1798. His command chiefly consisted of infantry of the 70th Demi-Brigade, with a few artillerymen and some cavalry of the 3rd Hussars. However, by the time he arrived off the Irish coast, the United Irish Rising had already suffered defeat. The expedition was able to land in Ireland at Killala on the 23rd of August 1798, meeting with initial successes in the Battle of Castlebar, where he routed the Irish militia. Humbert subsequently declared a Republic of Connacht, with hopes of taking Dublin. However, Humbert's small force was defeated at the Battle of Ballinamuck by the Royal Irish Army, and he was taken as a prisoner of war. The British sent the French officers home in a prisoner exchange in two frigates while the Irish rebels were slaughtered. Humbert seems, as Roger Casement later wrote, to his eternal disgrace to have made no attempt to save the Irish, who bravely supported him. A monument to General Humbert, or Humbert, depicting Mother Ireland, stands on Humbert Street, Ballina, County Mayo. Five months earlier, on the 12th of March 1798, a Supreme Council of the United Irishmen and their leaders were captured, while attending a meeting in the home of their member, Mr. Oliver Bond, of Bridge Street, Dublin. General Humbert and his forces were unaware of this when they capitulated at Ballinamuck on the morning of September the 8th, 1798. Charles Cornwallis, First Marquis Cornwallis, 1738-1805, was a British Army general and official in the United States and the United Kingdom. He is best remembered as one of the leading British generals in the American War of Independence. He surrendered in 1781 to a combined American and French force at the Siege of Yorktown, ending significant hostilities in North America. In June 1798, Cornwallis was appointed Lord Lieutenant of Ireland and Commander-in-Chief. His appointment, which had been discussed as early as 1797, was made in response to the outbreak in late May of the Irish Rebellion of 1798. His appointment was greeted unfavourably by the Irish elite, who preferred his predecessor, Lord Camden, and suspected he had liberal sympathies with the predominantly Catholic rebels. However, he struck up a good working relationship with Lord Castlereagh, whom he had appointed as Chief Secretary for Ireland. In his combined role as both Lord Lieutenant and Commander-in-Chief of the Royal Irish Army, Cornwallis oversaw the defeat of both the Irish rebels and a French invasion force led by General Jean Humbert that landed in Connacht in August 1798. Panicked by the landing and the subsequent British defeat at the Battle of Castlebar, Pitt dispatched thousands of reinforcements to Ireland, swelling British forces here to 60,000 men. The French invaders were defeated and forced to surrender at the Battle of Balnamuck, 
after which Cornwallis ordered the execution by lot of several Irish rebels. During the autumn, Cornwallis secured government control over most of Ireland and organised a suppression of the remaining supporters of the United Irishmen movement. Cornwallis was also instrumental in securing passage in 1800 of the Act of Union by the Parliament of Ireland, a necessary step in the creation of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. The process, which essentially required the buying of parliamentary votes through patronage and the granting of peerages, was one that Cornwallis found quite distasteful. He wrote, My occupation is now of the most unpleasant nature, negotiating and jobbing with the most corrupt people under heaven. I despise and hate myself every hour for engaging in such dirty work, and am supported only by the reflection that without a union, the British Empire must be dissolved. Although Cornwallis recognised that the union with Ireland was unlikely to succeed without Catholic emancipation, he and William Pitt were unable to move King George on the subject. Pitt consequently resigned, and Cornwallis also resigned his offices, returning to London in May 1801. Writing in 1867, the historian A.M. Sullivan said of the rebellion in Wexford and Wicklow, they rose purely and solely from the instinct of self-preservation. All the horrors of free quarters and martial law had been let loose. Atrocities that sickened the heart in their contemplation fill with terror the homes of that peaceful and inoffensive people. The midnight skies were reddened with the flames of burning cottages and the glens resounded with shrieks of agony, vengeance and despair. Homes desolated, female virtue made the victims of crime that cannot be named, the gibbet and triangle erected in every hamlet, and finally the temples of God desecrated and given to the torch. The historian T. N. Burke also wrote in 1872, In all this goading of the people into rebellion, who was accountable if not the infamous government which at the time ruled the destinies of Ireland? Are the Irish people accountable if from time to time the myrmidons of England have been let loose upon them, ravaging them like tigers, violating every instinct of Irish love for land, of Irish purity, of Irish fate? Is it not a terrible thing that all these provocations were deliberately put before the people in order to goad them into the rebellion of 1798? and so prepare the way for the Union of 1800, which followed. Father John Murphy of Wexford came home from his duties one day to find the houses of his poor neighbours sacked and burned, and to see his unfortunate parishioners huddled about the blackened walls of the chapel, crying, Sagart, dear, what are we to do? Where are we to flee from this terrible persecution? And Father Murphy got the pikes, put them in their hands and put himself at their head as their leader. Lord Holland, in Memoirs of the Whig Party, said, Many of my political opinions are softened, my predilections for some men weakened, my prejudices against others removed, but my abrobation of Lord Edward Fitzgerald's actions remains unaltered and shaken. 
his country was bleeding under one of the hardest tyrannies that our times have witnessed. He who thinks that a man can be even excused in such circumstances by any other consideration than that of despair from opposing by force a pretend government seems to me to sanction a principle which would ensure impunity to the greatest of all human delinquents, or at least to those who produce the greatest misery among mankind. During the first industrial revolution, David Ricardo, 1772 to 1823, put forward the theory of comparative advantage, saying that if Britain has a comparative advantage in iron and Russia in grain, then Britain should just make iron and import its grain from Russia, and vice versa. And at that time, Ricardo's idea became one of the most cherished principles of economics. However, the Industrial Revolution made some people rich, but many continued to live in deep poverty. People crowded into cities where living conditions were grim. There were thousands upon thousands of fantines, as depicted in Victor Hugo's 1862 novel Les Miserables. Children were crippled by long hours of factory work, and disease was everywhere. In Britain, the poorest people could go to the workhouse, where they were given food and bed, if they could stand the harsh conditions. Charles Fourier, 1772-1837, a Frenchman, was one to propose a new society, as was Welshman Robert Owen, 1771-1858, and Henri Saint-Simon, 1761-1824, a French aristocrat, all of them believing in a perfect world, and that a utopia could be created by appealing to people's reason and goodwill. They were against revolution and conflict between rich and poor. However, their hopes of peaceful change were swept away by a series of revolutions that broke out across Europe in the middle of the 19th century. Although influenced by them, Karl Marx said that Fourier, Owen and Saint-Simon were dreamers that thought up new worlds but did not know how to get to them. Lord Edward Fitzgerald, 1763-1798, son of the Duke of Leinster, commander-in-chief of the United Irish Military Organisation, was born at Carton House near Dublin. However, he spent most of his childhood in Frescati House at Black Rock in Dublin. Fitzgerald joined the British Army in 1779 and he was aide-de-camp on the staff of Lord Rawdon in the American Revolution. He was seriously wounded at the Battle of Utah Springs on the 8th of September 1781, his life being saved by an escaped slave named Tony Small, nicknamed Faithful Tony. Fitzgerald commissioned a portrait of Tony Small by John Roberts in 1786. Lord Edward freed Small and employed him to the end of his life. Fitzgerald was evacuated from Charleston, South Carolina in 1782 when the British forces abandoned the city. On the 27th of December 1792, Fitzgerald married a French woman named Pamela at Tournai, 
with one of the witnesses being Louis-Philippe, afterwards King of France, and in January 1793 the couple returned to Dublin. In May 1796, Wolf Tone was in Paris, endeavouring to obtain French assistance for an insurrection in Ireland. While in the same month Fitzgerald and his friend Arthur O'Connor proceeded to Hamburg, where they opened negotiations with the Directory through Reinhardt, French minister to the Hanseatic towns. The Directory established 196 short-lived sister republics in Italy, Switzerland and the Netherlands, but failed in its venture to support the Irish Rebellion of 1798 and create an Irish Republic. The Duke of York, meeting Pamela at Devonshire House on our way through London with her husband, had told her that all was known about his plans and advised her to persuade him not to go abroad. Also in Hamburg, Lord Edward met with Johann Anders Jägerhorn, a Finnish Swede who had advocated Finnish autonomy and now acted as an intermediary between Lord Edward and the French. The proceedings at Hamburg were made known to the government in London by an informer, Samuel Turner. Pamela was entrusted with all her husband's secrets and took an active part in furthering his plans. She appears to have fully deserved the confidence placed in her, though there is reason to suppose that at times she counselled prudence. The result of the Hamburg negotiations was General Hoshe's abortive expedition to Bantry Bay in December 1796. In September 1797, the government learned from the informer Leonard McNally that Lord Edward was among those directing the conspiracy of the United Irishmen, which was now quickly maturing. He was specially concerned with the military organisation in which he held the post of Colonel of the Kildare Regiment and Head of the Military Committee. He had papers showing that men were ready to rise. They possessed some arms, but the supply was insufficient and the leaders were hoping for a French invasion to make good the deficiency and to give support to the popular uprising. But the French help was uncertain. The rebel leaders were divided in opinion as to the expediency of taking the field without the foreign aid. Lord Edward Fitzgerald's social position made him the most important United Irish leader still at liberty. On the 9th of May, a reward of £1,000 was offered by Dublin Castle for his apprehension. On the arrests at Oliver Bond's house, three important men of position had been absent. They were the brothers John and Henry Shears and Dr. William Lawless. However, Fitzgerald had escaped the net at Bond's house and had been in hiding in Nick Murphy's house at 15 Thomas Street, Dublin, but had twice visited his wife in disguise and was himself visited by his stepfather, William Ogilvie, and his friend, William Lawless. Meanwhile, the date for the rising was finally fixed for the 23rd of May and Fitzgerald awaited the day in hiding. On the evening of the 18th of May, Lord Edward, after a meal with his host, decided to lie down. Nick Murphy followed him upstairs to speak to him about something, when the shuffle of feet on the stairs could be heard, and suddenly the room door burst open, and in rushed a police magistrate named Captain William Bellingham Swan with a soldier. Lord Edward was lying on the bed with his coat and vest off, 
He sprang from the bed, snatched a small dagger from under his pillow, and thrust it through Swan's hand, who managed to draw his pistol and fire. A yeomanry captain named Daniel Frederick Ryan rushed in with sword drawn, while at the same time Major Henry Sir, with a military party, rushed in to tackle Fitzgerald. Ryan was mortally wounded when struggling on the floor with Lord Edward, when Major Sir took deliberate aim and fired at the prisoner, wounding him in the shoulder. Then they all dived on top of him, some stabbing him, hacking with swords and clubbing with pistols. At length, weakened from loss of blood, Fitzgerald fainted. They took the bedsheet, wrapped his bleeding body, and dragged him down the stairs like a side of beef. Eyewitness said, The scene resembles that of a slaughterhouse. The floor, walls, and stairs were covered all over in his blood. He was dragged to Dublin Castle and thrown in the dungeon, where many a gallant Irishman had perished. Later he was moved to Newgate Prison. On June 3rd, his relatives were told that he was dying. His aunt, Lady Louisa Connolly, and his brother, Lord Henry Fitzgerald, visited and found him delirious and dying. Next day, on June 4th, he died. His wife, whom the government probably had enough evidence to convict of treason, had fled the country, never to see her husband again. Lord Edward died at the age of 34 on the 4th of June, 1798, as the rebellion raged outside. He was buried the next day in the cemetery of St. Werburgh's Church, Dublin. An act of attainer confiscating his property was passed, but was eventually repealed in 1819. The weapon used by Lord Edward to attack Captains Swan and Rhine, while trying to escape arrest, was later stolen from Major Swan's house by Emma Lucretia Dobbin, the daughter of Reverend William Dobbin and Catherine Coote. The scabbard he reputedly had at his arrest is held at Limerick Museum. Fitzgerald's hiding place on Thomas Street, Dublin, had been disclosed by a barrister and informer named Francis Megan, who was admitted to Trinity College, Dublin in 1788, although he did not attend before 1791. He joined the College Historical Society, but was never active. In May 1794, he signed the Oath of Loyalty to the British monarch, required of any Catholic barrister, and went to London to study at Lincoln's Inn. Returning to Dublin in 1796, he was admitted to the Irish Bar at King's Inns. The published records of the King's Inns state that he had been employed in the Irish Revenue Service. Megan's historical notoriety originates from a single act. During April-May 1798, he informed the British government several times of the whereabouts of Lord Edward Fitzgerald on Thomas Street. Just as the latter prepared to take the field at the head of thousands of croppies during the 1798 Rising, Lord Edward's arrest on the 19th of May deprived the United Irishmen of their most charismatic leader. Megan passed this to the castle without being discovered or even suspected during his lifetime probably because of his otherwise unremarkable life. He had found out that Lord Edward's whereabouts, through his involvement with the United Irishmen, being a member of its committee responsible for Dublin. He hosted a meeting of this committee on the night of the 17th of May, 1798. Lord Edward attended, and may have passed the night in Megan's house. Megan sold this information onto Dublin Castle the next day.
It was only with the publication of W.J. Fitzpatrick's Secret Service Under Pitt, a century later in 1892, that Megan was unveiled as the traitor. Francis Higgins was paid £1,000 for betraying Lord Edward Fitzgerald, and Megan got a pension of £300 a year. A fortune bequeathed by one Francis Megan led to the foundation of St. Vincent's Hospital, Fairview, Dublin, in 1857. His friend, Francis Higgins, known as the Sham Squire, was owner of the well-known newspaper, The Freeman's Journal. John and Henry Shears were arrested on the 21st of May, tried and executed on the 14th of July, 1798. John Warnford Armstrong, a lieutenant in the King's County Militia, befriended them and then betrayed them. Armstrong pretended to become a member of the Society of United Irishmen and took the oath of fidelity to that body. He even visited the family of Henry Shears and held his only child upon his knee, whilst at the same time he reported everything back to his commanding officer, Colonel Henry Lestrange. General William Lawless, 1772-1824, was a Dublin-born surgeon and important member of the Society of the United Irishmen, a Catholic. He was the confidant of Lord Edward Fitzgerald and was also Professor of Anatomy and Physiology in the Royal College of Surgeons, Dublin. Connected with John Shears in the direction of affairs in the spring of 1798, a warrant for his arrest was issued on the 20th of May with a reward of £300. Timely notice was, however, given to him of the fact by George Stuart, the Surgeon General, and he escaped to France, where his abilities and spirit recommended him to the special favour of Napoleon. While in Paris, he spent time with the other United Irishmen in exile. Napoleon summoned him to Paris, decorating him with the Legion of Honour, and promoted him to Lieutenant Colonel. In 1812, he was made Colonel, and on the 21st of August 1813, he lost a leg at the Battle of Dresden. After the restoration of the Bourbons, Lawless was reduced in October 1814 to half pay with the rank of Brigadier General. General Lawless died in Paris on the 25th of December 1824, aged 52. His remains were buried at Pierre Lacaise Cemetery in Paris. Thomas Moore said of him, a person of that mild and quiet exterior, which is usually found to accompany the most determined spirit. John Warnford Armstrong, 1770-1858, from Ballycumber, near Clara in County Offaly, was praised by loyalists for saving Dublin from massacre on the 20th of July, 1798. He was granted the freedom of the city by Dublin Corporation. Later, on the 23rd of December, 1798, Kings County militia officers presented Armstrong with a gold medal, praising his conduct in convicting the Shears brothers and in December 1799, he received a government pension of £500 a year. After touring in France, Switzerland and Italy, he returned to Ballycumber in June 1823 to live comfortably on his pension and rents of £200 a year. He attended to his duties as Justice of the Peace and Grand Juryman of King's County and was generally on good terms with his tenants and neighbours but had a reputation as a severe magistrate. 
Armstrong retained his health and vitality into old age. Even in his 80s, he attended petty sessions at Ballycumber twice a week and travelled regularly to Dublin to draw his pension. He died on the 20th of April, 1858, and was buried in the family vault at Liss Church, Ballycumber, County Offaly. For much of the 19th century, the only factories in Ireland were the textile mills of the North, the Guinness Brewery, and the Jacobs Biscuit Factory in Dublin. For most of this period, the Irish economy provided cheap raw materials such as timber, beef, vegetables and marble to the far more industrialised British economy. Ireland underwent major highs and lows economically during the 19th century. In 1815, wheat and other grain prices fell by half in Ireland, and alongside continued population growth, landlords converted cropland into rangeland by securing the passage of the tenant farmer eviction legislation in 1816, which led, because of the Irish workforce's historic concentration in agriculture, to a greater subdivision of the remaining land plots and increasingly less efficient and less profitable subsistence farms. Ireland's economic problems were in part the result of the small size of Irish holdings. In particular, both the law and social tradition provided for subdivision of land with all sons of Catholic families inheriting equal shares in a farm, meaning that farms became so small that only one crop, potatoes, could be grown in sufficient amounts to feed a family. Furthermore, many estates from whom the small farmers rented were poorly run by absentee landlords and in many cases heavily mortgaged. Battle 
Cornwallis at Ballinama. The captured French soldiers were all shipped back home. Your plight was in vain, and you. Could 